welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast with over 250 unique episodes taped since our beginning four years ago. I'm also privileged to be the author of a 10-volume series from HarperCollins Leadership called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where each year I write a different volume in the Master Mentors book based on guest on this Franklin Covey podcast. And volume two, Master Mentors, volume two is now out as well too, featuring 30 new mentors and 30 new insights on our way to 10 volumes in this series. Help you pick up a copy. Very easy, breezy, read. I kind of call it now the new chicken soup for the soul. You can read the book in under an hour. It's meant to be read like from Nashville to Orlando or from LA to San Fran. So I hope you can pick up a copy of Master Mentor. Our guests today are two powerhouses in both the business, academic, and literary world. I'm honored today that Erica James and her co-author Lynn Wooten have joined us. They are the authors of the recently released book, The Prepared Leader, Emerge from Any Crisis More Resilient Than Before. Yes, we have two authors joining us today. Erica James, Lynn Wooten, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Same, Erica. Lynn, welcome as well. Scott, it's an honor, especially for someone who's consumed Covey knowledge for 30 years plus. So definitely an honor. Lynn, I'm in the same boat. I am a 27-year associate of the Franklin Covey Company. Dr. Covey raised me from a very immature, incompetent individual producer to a little more competent leader, but delighted that you both have been around the Franklin Covey content for some time. Truly an honor to have you both here. The two of you are independently and collectively absolute powerhouses. A little bit about those last few people who may not know you as uh, as uh, leadership authors, um, Erica James, you're the dean of the Wharton School, one of the most prestigious uh, academic institutions in the world. In fact, you are the first woman and first person of color to serve as the dean of that 141-year academic institution. Uh, Lynn Wooten, similarly, you are the ninth president of Simmons University and the first African-American to also lead that organization. We're honored to have you here today to talk about your new book, The Prepared Leader. This is not your first book collaboration. About a decade ago, the two of you co-authored a book called Leading Under Pressure. So you know a few things about doing that, especially leading institutions in the midst of a pandemic and post-pandemic world with all kinds of unprecedented uh, challenges. What I'd like to do is have you perhaps in order, Erica first and then Lynn. Would you reorient our guests, our, our listeners and our viewers to your own your own professional journey. Erica, why don't we start with you? Give us a few moments on how you got to where you are today, co-writing the book with your partner, Lynn. There's a, there's a lot to that question. Uh, so Lynn and I have been friends. We met in graduate school in the mid-1990s, early 1990s, and have been collaborators and authors and friends ever since. So our collaboration is very longstanding. Uh, for me personally, I am a psychologist by background and training and entered the field of organizational psychology where I thought I would be spending my career focused on understanding matters of workplace diversity. And uh, at one point early in my academic profession, I was teaching a group of, under, of, of MBA students who also were working full time at an oil company that was in the midst of a pretty significant class action discrimination lawsuit. And the more I learned about that particular incident, 
the more I started to see that the organization at the time was really experiencing this, this discrimination issue as a crisis because it was highly visible. There was a lot of adverse stakeholder reaction. So my research was really born from wanting to understand uh, how firms respond to discrimination and diversity challenges. And Lynn and I collaborated on that initial paper. And then over the 1990s and 2000s, Enron and WorldCom and all of these other business scandals happened. And our collaboration just continued to grow and, and be much more broad in terms of the types of crises that we started to look at. And that culminated in a first book, uh, Leading Under Pressure. And then 10 years after that, we said, we should probably revisit that. The world has changed. And started on this book, uh, The Prepared Leader, just months before COVID hit. So our timing has been precipitous. Erica, your, uh, your competence and, and uh, uh, resume are without dispute. But Lynn, I understand your GPA was higher than Erica's back in grad school. Is that true? <laughs> like a lot higher. <laughs> no, Sorry, that's, that's not true. But, <laughs> but I was the valedictorian of my undergrad class. But yes. <laughs> so, so there, Erica. Uh, Lynn, give us, give, us, give us a few minutes on your own professional background, please. So as Erica said, we both met in grad school at the University of Michigan. She's more of what we call a micro-organizational theorist and was trained in organizational psychology. My PhD is in corporate strategy. So I look at big pictures, firm performance, organizational performance. And my initial research really wanted to understand how organizational culture, routines, and leadership led to organizational effectiveness. Now, one thing that Erica and I both have that we've studied in research is positive deviance. No matter if it's a crisis or the status quo, we seek to understand what excellence looks like in leadership situations. And so I'm a positive organizational scholarship. I want to understand how organizations thrive, how people are resilient. How do you show up to be your best self have all been important questions. Um, the other thing about both Erica and I, in addition to being scholars, we're teachers. And we've spent all our career teaching business school students. And we realize um, across the spectrum, undergrad and grad leadership, emerging leaders in the C-suite, not a lot of formal training talks about how you lead in a crisis situation. We talk about everything, profits and accounting and marketing, and corporate strategy, but we wanted to be a resource for people that even in a crisis situation, you could thrive. And that's what much of my career has been about. I mean, Lynn, it's a bit of a cliche, but you could argue the best time to have written this book would have been two and a half years ago, right? But the second best time to have released this book is right now because there's not a leader in the world that isn't thinking about what are the lessons that we've learned. And this is coming again, whatever this is, whether it's a pandemic again or some global crisis or an inflationary unprecedented you know, increase in pressures on our budgets or on supply chain. You'd argue that you know it's just as timely now as it might've been two years ago because every board, every executive team is thinking about it. Lynn, what are the biggest lessons you think leaders have learned from the last two and a half years? Scott, you articulated it so well. Before what I call the pandemic era, everybody said, not me. I'm never gonna to have to lead in a crisis. The crisis is not gonna to touch my organization. I don't need to know about how to lead the crisis. And then you go to 2020, in the spring of 2020, and everyone on this planet, every industry, every person was touched and started to say, I need the skills to live in a crisis. 
And so now one, there's more acknowledgement that it's important that we all have the skill set to lead in a crisis. People are more in tune to saying, what are the signals of a crisis? How do I prepare for that crisis? How do I get to business recovery mode that we talked about? Um, but more importantly, um, what Erica and I think of a hallmark of crisis leadership is engaging in real-time learning. So before, during, and after the crisis so that the organization comes out to be better. Uh, Lynn, well said. Erica, I'm going to ask you to follow up on that. Of all the books that you could have written or co-authored with your longtime friend and colleague, Lynn, why did you pick this topic? Why was emerging from any crisis more resilient than before where you chose to put your precious spare time, right? I mean, you're leading one of the, the most reputable institutions academically in the world. Why is this topic so important to you personally, Erica? So going back to my work in crisis management at the, in the early days, one of the things that was just so problematic for me as a teacher of business students was the narrative in this country and around the world that business was bad, that business leaders were bad or corrupt or problematic and, and the lack of trust that existed in the corporate sector. And I knew that I wanted to devote a career professionally in terms of working with students, but also the research that we engaged in to change the narrative about how people think about the value that business contributes to the world. And we know that every organization at some point or another is going to experience a threat that they are unprepared for. And following on the heels of our initial book, we really wanted to revisit what are the leadership skills now that are necessary for leaders to maneuver their organizations and themselves successfully through threatening situations or through a crisis. And it so happened that just as we were starting to write this book, the pandemic hit. And it also so happened that Lynn and I both started as new leaders in pretty visible, powerful institutions. And so we were experiencing the need for effective crisis leadership while we were also writing about it. So a number of things came together that just made this the perfect time to highlight what the world needs more to um, advance effective, strong, ethical, prepared leaders. Ladies, the book is enormously practical from, from you know, um, academicians, of which you are, you know, you're in leadership and you also are running large you know, business, business enterprises because schools have P&Ls. The book really is a, is a must read for every COO, every CMO, every CEO, every COO, every CIO, every CTO. It's a must read for every board member, for anybody who's in risk management, anybody who's in public relations. It's enormously practical. You organize the book into kind of two big sections, if you will. The, you, you call the five phases of crisis management, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then you go into even more practically what you call the nine skills of crisis management. Erica, I'm going to come back with you, come, stay with you for a moment. Let's talk about what these five phases are. One, you and Lynn call it the early warning signs and signal detection. Two, preparation and prevention. Three, damage containment. Four, recovery. And five, learning and reflection. They're fairly intuitive, but I think I was most taken with the first phase you call early warning and signal detection. Um, Erica, why don't you lead us off and tell us why that's such a vital leadership competency and why do so many of us miss it? Do we, are, is it aloofness or arrogance or distraction, lack of focus, lack of experience? Erica, talk about why, number one, early warning and signal detection is so maybe underrated. 
honestly, you answered the you answered your own question because it is all <laughs> of those things. It goes back to the point that Lynn made. Uh, we don't believe that we will be directly affected by unfortunate events. And there are a number of human biases that lead into a mindset or a framework that allows us not to think that anything bad will happen to us. It's actually a self-protection mechanism. So those leaders who do recognize this cycle that we refer to in the book of panic and neglect, something bad happens to us or to another organization, we're in this frenzy trying to deal with it, and then we forget about it and assume it's over and nothing bad will ever happen again. And we know now that that's never going to be the case. Things will always continue to be bad. And so the more we can prepare and train our minds to be um, thoughtful about understanding what's happening in our environment that leads us to be vulnerable to external threats, and even more importantly, to internal threats, things that we're, uh, we're doing ourselves in the organization, decisions that are being made, actions that are being taken that could lead to a threat down the road. And so the more we're able to highlight the need for people to pay attention to those small decisions that over time could add up to something pretty negative, it has got to be the initial facet of crisis leadership. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, but you know, when you're a leader of an enterprise or a division or of a large organization, the pressures are, um, are daunting, right? They're unrelenting engagement, retention, growth, acquisition strategy, and not a lot of C-suite leaders have time to prepare for the uncertain. But in many ways, it is a leadership competency to be able to be looking around corners, right? To kind of be anticipating what might come and to have plans in place for that, which is tough to do because you're focused on the bottom line and quarterly profits and things like that. I think everybody's been sobered up to understand how important it is to dedicate time and intellect, maybe even humility, right? To recognize this is coming again. Whatever this is, it's going to come our way again. Will we be caught, you know, prepared or unprepared? Lynn, would you build on what Erica said? Of many practical, real-life examples, obviously, you two used a pandemic as a real-life example throughout the book. Lynn, what did the NBA get right and get wrong? Obviously, the NBA was at the center of the pandemic firestorm in the beginning around things maybe they did right or wrong, and everybody watched what they were doing as we did and didn't go to games and saw different you know, players react different ways and commissioners and coaches and owners react. What would you extrapolate for all of us to learn, whether we're in the business of selling lingerie or IT or tulips or academic, right. academic services? Lynn, what would you say are some of the lessons to take away from how the NBA, National Basketball Association, dealt with the pandemic? You know, one of the things we talk about is the importance of speed and speed in the context of quick ethical decision-making. So the NBA said the pandemic is not going anywhere, but we still want to be able to run our business and provide basketball to the world. So how can we do that? The next thing they did was they were creative. Okay, we know what some best practices are. We know what the data says. And one of the best practices, you create a bubble around people, you have really good health policies, and you try to contain the pandemic. And so the NBA said, where can we go and create that bubble? Well, we can go to Orlando, Florida to create that bubble, have that community follow the best protocols. So the NBA was good about how do I get to the thing about this is a crisis, but I want to get back to business recovery. And therefore, it's going to take me to use the best data, the best practices, to scan my environment, and to be creative. In the book, we talk about trust being a component. 
And the NBA had to build trust for its players, its basketball community, and its viewers. And in the book, we say trust takes a lot. You have to demonstrate that you're competent. And so the leadership was able to demonstrate that they're competent. They were able to make a psychological contract that we're prioritizing our players and our fans. And then they were able to communicate what they're doing to let the world know. So they're their exemplar example. Uh, I, I love the NBA example, Scott. Lynn, expand on that for a moment. And then Erica, I'm, 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 I'll invite you to follow up after Lynn. Let's talk about clarity of communication. Now this is not meant to be a political statement. But during the, the, the onset of the pandemic with the Trump administration here in the US, I don't think anybody, even his most staunch supporters would have said the strength of the administration was clarity in communication. As an average citizen, you had the CDC telling you one thing, changing by the day sometimes. You had your local health department scrambling every night. You were listening to you know, Mario Cuomo on CNN every night with his brother saying what was going on in, in, in New York City, right? And people in, in Phoenix couldn't even relate to it because there weren't tractor trailers full of bodies stacking up in Phoenix. And you had all kinds of information from Dr. Fauci and the White House commissions, and it changed daily. It was like, it was insanity for probably six months or so, politics aside. I'm guessing, Lynn, perhaps you first and then Erica, I'm guessing you've been fixated on the role that clarity in communication, even perhaps when you yourself are unclear, is imperative. What are some of the lessons learned there, Lynn? Boy, Scott, you're bringing back memories. So I spent the first couple of months in upstate New York. I was wrapping up my Cornell deanship. So as you can imagine, I looked at Cuomo every day at noon during lunch. Yes, right. And then follow up in the evening with some of the news stories that you talked about. And we were all confused. Most of us had never lived through a pandemic before. Therefore, we did not have a roadmap for communications. But what we call out in our practice and our tools and our books are, one, you have to show the data and you have to be able to communicate the data in a way that all stakeholders can understand it. And it has to be, you know, you write it. It couldn't be for one state. It had to be for the whole world. And I think that's why people like Dr. Fauci, you need to be consistent on how you communicate the data. And sometimes when you don't know or you make a mistake, you need to be honest and vulnerable. And I don't know if we were good about that. A lot, we didn't know what was gonna work in the pandemic. We didn't know how we were gonna control it. So honesty was important and being vulnerable. Erica, build on that. I would say following up on the honesty, <clears throat> you have to trust people are looking for trustworthy people and trustworthy information. And I think what we saw early on in the pandemic was almost this lack of humility and, and this, this sort of hubris that people felt very confident or at least projected confidence that they knew what they were doing and that they had all the information. And 24 hours later, we would learn that that information was not valid or not accurate. And You so mean I like it's going to magically disappear, that line, right? That, yes. Well, yeah. that would be one yeah. thing, probably. <laughs> Uh, and so you, people lost credibility because their information wasn't trustworthy. I would say, though, <clears throat> that Lynn's right. There was so much that we didn't know. It's not surprising that we had to change course hourly and daily and weekly. Uh, but this is also now where the learning comes into play, because we've now all lived through and experienced uh, this pandemic and the challenge of communication. So the question becomes, what have we learned about that so that the next time we need to communicate around circumstances that we don't have all of the information, we'll be able to handle it differently and hopefully, uh, and hopefully better.
Beautifully said. Again, uh, I know nothing about recommending restaurants or movies, but I got a lot of credibility when it comes to recommending books. Look at the set behind me. Authored six myself, and I've read thousands of them. And I'll tell you, for everyone that's listening and watching this podcast, you're going to be inclined to read books about strategy, execution, business model, around uh, culture, leadership skills. Keep reading those books. You're going to be less inclined to read books around how do I become prepared for the next crisis? But this is the kind of book that should absolutely be on your nightstand and on, and on the nightstand of your entire leadership team because we're going to face more global crises, whether they're economic crises, pandemics, environmental crises. It's coming our way, and I think a key differentiator in perhaps the next decade plus of leadership is how well prepared are you not to repeat the same mistakes that have come from the last maybe four or five crises, whether it's terrorist attacks or global economic meltdowns, whatever it is. Ladies, you've written a masterpiece here. Let me recap a couple. You call these five phases early warning and signal detection. We talked about those. Number two is preparation and prevention. Number three is damage containment. Four, recovery. And five, learning and reflection. Before we move to the nine skills of crisis management, Lynn, are there any of those first five phases that you think it's important maybe to expand on in our conversation today? You know, um, we, we position this as prepared leaders, and we call prepared the fourth P. And as you're going through those phases, asking yourself, okay, the people I need to take care of, the profit or the organizational effective metrics that are important during the crisis and the environment and what I want to do for the planet. So making sure that you're balancing the three P's with your prepared leadership acts through the five phases are very important, Scott. Thank you, Lynn. This book is, like I said several times, super practical. Erica, you offered what you call the nine skills of crisis management in order, sense-making, perspective-taking, influence, organizational agility, creativity, communicating effectively, risk-taking, promoting resilience, and individual and systemic learning. You know, I'm most interested probably in number four. First, Erica, to you, and then maybe Lynn, over to you. What you call organizational agility, right? Everybody is fixated on agile learning and agile organizations and how facile we are, our emotional agility. Dr. Susan David wrote a phenomenal book out of Harvard Medical School on emotional agility. Erica, what does it mean practically for a leader, even perhaps like a division or team leader? What are some of the skills in, what does it look like, feel like, sound like to have an uh, agile organization, Erica, first, so that you are able to immediately adapt to what perhaps are sometimes unprecedented and un, unfathomable? I mean, I never would have thought in my lifetime I would have heard the phrase shelter in place. That's something you hear from like, you know, Eastern Europe, right, or the Middle East or something. In America, it's unfathomable. Erica, expand on um, number four, organizational agility. So this organizational agility is really uh, an important concept because the academic literature will, will tell you that when any organism, and human beings included, are experiencing threat, their tendency is to become very rigid in their response, mm. meaning they are likely to um, be, become paralyzed and not be able to move quickly. And oftentimes what we need is, is the flight response. We need to be able to get out of harm's way quickly. And so we think about that in the context of what animals might do when they are threatened. 
But human beings oftentimes can become paralyzed and narrow the scope of creativity and ideas for problem solving when they are under pressure or when they're feeling uh, threatened. And so what we try to highlight is the need to counter our perhaps natural inclination, which is to, to become rigid uh, and become much more agile individually as an individual leader, as an individual contribute to the organ, contributor to the organization that might look like uh, trying new things. It might look like talking with new people. It might look like uh, experimenting in small ways uh, because in a crisis, whatever, you've, whatever has worked before on everyday problem solving is probably not going to work again for this new uh, situation that you're experiencing. So putting yourself out there to find uh, opportunities to be much more uh, aggressive and agile in our behaviors and in our mindset is a critical competency for leaders during times of crisis. Lynn, what would you add to what you call the fourth skill of the nine skills of crisis management organizational agility? I first want to build upon what Erica said. And as humans, we have to give ourselves grace when we're hitting a crisis. You go back to the pandemic and look at some of the behavior we saw as people became um, data paralysis through data analysis, the hoarding of toilet paper and paper towels, all of those behaviors were people trying to make sense in their coping mechanism. So taking a deep breath, realizing you're in a crisis situation, and then asking yourself, what are the actions I can do to make the situation better? How can I be strategic? How can I move quickly? How can I balance resolving the crisis and helping the crisis with thinking about the future of the organization? So one of my favorite um, examples is General Motors. You think about at the peak of the crisis, they were very agile and quick. We're going to take a pause here. We're going to stop making cars. We're going to do something for our country and be a good citizen. We're going to make the PPE and healthcare equipment that people need for the pandemic because our plants are set up for large manufacturing. We're going to make masks. <clears throat> but we're also going to be strategic and agile and think about the future and build the workforce and the skill set to make electric cars. And so Mary Barr and General Motors is an example of agility, thinking about the present and how I can thrive and survive and thinking about the future. This question I think is for both of you. You aren't just academicians, which obviously is not meant to be anything other than a compliment. You are authors, you are practitioners, you're educators, you have to hire and fire, you have to make high courage conversations on daily basis with employees, you run a P&L. Um, Erica, let's start with you. How are you a different leader as a result of both having gone through the pandemic and have now having co-authored this book with Lynn? What, what have you learned? How will you be better prepared for the next perhaps unknown crisis coming your way? So one of the experiences that Lynn and I have in common uh, in terms of assuming our current positions is that we both started these roles right in the early stages of the crisis. And for both of us, our organizations, for me, the Wharton School and for Lynn Simmons University, were operating in a remote environment. So we moved to new locations. We started these jobs, trying to run pretty significant institutions from our you know, bedroom apartments or, or you know, our, our house. And we, neither of us knew anyone in our organizations, and yet we were tasked with leading them. We had never spent any time around our leadership team. We didn't know what information we could trust or not trust. We didn't know where to go to seek counsel or advice. And so one of the things that I think I took away from that experience and how my own leadership has evolved 
is the need and importance of relationships. And when you don't have relationships and you're, you're in a position to have to make really significant decisions, it becomes an even more lonely, isolating, scary position. So I would advise and counsel and encourage people to really spend the time necessary to invest in high quality relationships because you never know when you're going to need them. And when you need them, you want to be able to, you want to ensure that you have the complete confidence that people are capable, that people are trustworthy, that people are in the thick of things with you. And so for me, it's all about um, highlighting the importance of relationships in terms of how my own leadership has evolved. Eric, I think it's beautifully said. I think it's true that every company is now a technology company and everyone's in the same business. They're in the relationship business. And at Franklin Covey, we teach that we don't think people are an organization's most valuable asset. We actually think it's the relationships between people that becomes your ultimate competitive advantage. How fast can you move? How fast can you forgive? How fast can you admit you were wrong or offer an apology or recoup and say, gosh, what I told you yesterday actually is no longer accurate. We have more information. Will you trust me? Now this is the new information we have. Uh, Lynn, what would you add to what Erica said? Is your own perhaps biggest epiphany in terms of your own skill set and maturity, how you are now a better prepared leader from having led through the pandemic and co-authored this valuable book? That industries and organizations are constantly reinventing and disrupting themselves. Erica and I have spent our entire life in the academy. Four years ago, if you would have told me that we could have universities that could fully teach online for a year. And remember, professors were saying we can never teach remote. And so that individuals and organizations teams are adaptable, that when we have disruption, we rise up to the occasion and we become creative and resourceful and we learn um, and constantly having to reinvent ourselves, especially with me leading a small university and thinking about new business models and new ways of educating students have been my big lessons. Uh, as we're ending, I want to pay you both a compliment. Other than a super valuable book, I really applaud you for leading out on the following genre. As we both know, in the publishing world, usually when you have a book deal, your editor or publisher tells you, great, your book needs to be 65,000 words or 50,000 words, which is why the second half of most business books is never read because most authors have about 35 or 40,000 words in them and the last half of the book is merely fluff to meet their editor's goal. But you wrote a short book. You wrote a book that's about 135 pages. It probably would be about a four or five hour read about the attention span of anybody who should read your book. So I applaud you on putting in the book only what was needed, which is why I think your book is going to do so well because it is digestible. It's a superb read for a leadership team book club or a management team book club as well. Erica James and Lynn Wooten, your book is The Prepared Leader, Emerge from Any Crisis More Resilient Than Before. Erica, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. And Lynn, thank you for your time as well. Scott, thank you. It's been an honor. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.